Welcome to the VIP Jazzwall Report, the report that asks insightful questions and gets revealing answers from people whose lives are faced with dilemmas and challenges beyond the ordinary. Our guest today is Dr. David Jeremiah. He's the senior pastor of the Shadow Mountain Community Church in El Cajon, California, and whose ministry, Turning Point, reaches an audience of millions around the world. His ability lies in helping people understand how to apply the teachings of the Bible to everyday living. Our journey today will take us into discovering David, the man, and Dr. Jeremiah, the pastor. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jeremiah. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I do love your name. It's, it's a holy name. You were born to do this right from the start. Yeah, actually, my, my full name is David Paul Jeremiah, so I'm, I'm three, threefold in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, let's get right to it. What, was, what were the most significant moments in your life that led you to the pulpit? You know what? Uh, I grew up in a pastor's home, but I didn't have any idea that I wanted to do what my father was doing. I, I knew there were some challenges to that kind of life. But when I was a senior in college, my dad asked me to go and speak in a little country church. He, he was the president of the college that I attended. By the time I got to college, he had become a president mm -hmm. of a Baptist college. So I agreed to go up there just kind of because uh, I thought it would be fun to have the experience. And we went to this little country church. <clears throat> when I say country, what I mean is there was a cemetery beside it. And uh, there were 35 people that I remember. And I gave a little speech that morning. And, and I went to dinner with, uh, had, I had my girlfriend with me, who's now my wife. And we went to dinner in the home of one of the little farm families there and uh, found out at dinner that I was supposed to speak that night, which nobody had told me. <laughs> so, I had told them everything I knew in the morning, and I had to recycle it for that night. But uh, long story short, I went back the next week and the next week after that. And in the process of doing that, I realized that this is what I, I was born to do. This is what I believe God had created me to do. And so uh, I set my sights on a graduate seminary and ended up in Dallas going to the Dallas Seminary for four years to get ready to do what I do now. And there was no looking back? No looking back, no regrets. Now, as a man where do, and a leader, where do you get your strength from? Well, you know, first of all, I get my strength from God, and I know I'm supposed to say that. I'm paid to say things like that. Right. It's really true, and my strength was, was greatly tested um, uh, in, in, in my own personal life when I went through two uh, bouts of uh, lymphoma cancer and ended up having a stem cell transplant. And I used to tell my people, you know, I've always told you that this this Bible truth works, but I told you that, first of all, because I read it and I believed it, but now I can tell you that it works because Almighty God has allowed me to have some experiences that have proven that in the, in the darkest hours, uh, He's enough, and He has been enough for me. You know, you mentioned getting your strengths tested, and also... Um in your in your in your own bio, you you talk about applying the teachings of the Bible to everyday living. Taking that one step forward, how do you handle moments of temptation, moments of weakness in your life? Well, you know, first of all, the the Bible says that everybody has those moments. Actually, one verse says, "There has no temptation taken you, but such is common to man." So every man has temptation. Uh, there are a number of things. First of all, I, I, I have a lot of checks in my life. Um, I have uh, accountability to, to a number of people. Um, my wife and I never travel unless we're with two couples that go with us everywhere we go. Um, 
my wife is is my best ally, my best friend, uh, and she knows <clears throat> when when danger is in the in the in the in the works. She she's very alert to it. You you understand sometimes that when you're in a public place, and if people view that place as powerful, sometimes uh, women get the wrong uh, ideas about you. And uh, my wife can smell that a hundred miles away. And so she, you know, we just we are just very careful about what we do. I never counsel a woman alone. I I never do things that would put me in a place of temptation. That doesn't mean that I won't have them. But I, I like to tell people uh, temptation is common to man. And even the Lord Jesus Himself was tempted in the wilderness by by Satan. It's not a sin to be tempted, but it is a sin to yield to temptation. And so the best thing you can do to to guard against that is to set up checks around you, make sure that you don't do things that uh, could could lead you to temptation. I think when we were talking earlier, I mentioned that when we um, when we got our cable system, I, I didn't get any of the movie channels because while there are good movies on those channels, there are also some very bad ones, and I didn't want to be cycling through the screen, uh, through the television some night when I'm alone, home, and tired, and coming along something that the eye shouldn't see. So I don't I don't take the risk. So you very consciously put checks and balances in your own world. Yes, I do. I do. And I think when you're in a place of leadership yes. and influence, you owe it to the people uh, who, who, who look to you to make sure that you do that. You, you and I both know the sad tragedies that dot our news landscape from time to time, both in the political world and in the, even in the, in the Christian world, of people who don't do that and, and end up... Um, in, in a place where they don't want to be. Now, how do you handle fame and fortune? Well, I, I, I tell you the, the, the truth about that is that um, a long time ago, I made a decision to take God very seriously and not to take myself very seriously at all. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I don't feel like I'm a famous person. I, I, I know that... You know, we somebody told me the other day that we have over two million people who watch us on television every weekend, and they somehow figured that out. I don't ever think about that. I think about the person that's sitting in front of me in my own local church. And I think one of the things that helps you when you do what I do is to be the pastor of a local church. I mean, if you're out doing these arena events we do, your heads can get in the clouds. But when you come home on Sunday, your feet got to be on the ground because you're, you're sitting there and you're dealing with people who've come to church out of the workplace. Some of them have had tragedies the week before. Some of them have been through major stress with their families. So, you know, I think one of the things that's really important is that I live in the real world. I don't live in a dream world or a world where I come out of my little cloistered halls every once in a while to make a speech to somebody. I live every day. Today I came to work, and there's a guy in our church who was in a terrible accident. His family was – he just about lost his whole family, and I've spent the morning – trying to get a car for him to drive and to, and to gather some money up to help him through this. So every day that I'm home, I'm, I'm dealing with that, and, and that keeps my feet on the ground, and I'm so thankful for that. Now, obviously, you know, success has its own um, positive indulgences. What's been your biggest indulgence from the rewards of your work? Well, um, I, love, I love my family. 
you know, my wife keeps, every once in a while she'll talk about retirement, and I tell Donna, Henny, I'm not going to retire, but every once in a while we'll pretend we're retired, and we'll go somewhere and have a great time together, and we do. I don't have learned how to do that, and we we now have the resources to do that, whereas when we first started, you know, we didn't have enough money to go downtown, so now that we I've written some books that have done well and I, and I have some resources so every year we try to take a trip just to enjoy one another and uh we're getting ready to celebrate our 50th wedding anniversary so congratulations we're we're getting ready to take another trip just to do that that's kind of what I enjoy. I just enjoy being with my family, being with my wife. I, I love basketball. Um, I got some kids that are really into sports. I think when we talked earlier, I told you I have a son who is on the NFL Network every day, and so all of that's just really fun for me. And and the, and the rest of my life is is pretty hard work, and some of it's pretty serious. How do you keep so active? Because I've seen your clips on YouTube, and you know, just looking at your posture and and the way you present yourself. I mean, you're seventy two, right? Right. Um, do you keep fit? What do you do? Well, I work out. Uh, I have a, a membership in a gym here, and uh, after I went through my bouts with cancer, I had pretty much neglected my body up until that time. You know, I was an athlete in school, but you know, the worst thing about being an athlete in school is you think that you're going to be that way all your life, and it doesn't take long for you to lose your fitness. And I had done that. After I came through my cancer, I really got serious about my my weight. I got serious about exercising, and as much as possible, I do that. I I have I love to to ride bikes. And I have a bike. Uh, we have a little place in Coronado, and there's a wonderful bike strip down there. It's in the summertime, I can do that just about every day because the pressure is a little bit less than it is during the winter. So I just keep active. But you know what? I, I think a lot of that is, is more in your mind than it is in your body. I love what uh, one one guy said. Uh, Mark Twain, I think, is recorded as saying, how old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? And uh, you know, I don't feel like I'm 72. I, I, it doesn't even dawn on me that 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 I'm that old. Uh, I, I I feel full of vigor and, and and joy, and and I love what I do. And every day I get up with uh, with expectation for the day. Well, my wife would say I'm a five-year-old in my own mind. So <laughs> now I'm very excited today because my one question to you that nobody knows, or very very few people know. And I, that question was, tell us one thing your followers don't know about you. Well, there's a funny little thing that my family kids me about. When I when I was growing up back in Ohio, I was in a school. I was a basketball player, and I was in a school where at, at least for um, two or three of the years I was there, uh, I was the only uh, white boy on the starting five of a basketball team where there were four uh, African-Americans who were very good, and somehow I got in that mix. So I hung out a lot in the in the African-American community. One of those things my buddies taught me to do was to hand bone. And uh, hand boning, uh, for those of you who have not been initiated to this great art, is that uh, wonderful thing where you slap your hands on your on your on your on your legs and on your chest, and you do a rhythm class, a rhythm thing with that. That's pretty amazing, and uh, and I learned how to do that, and I can do it better than some of the people who taught me. Go for it, Doctor Jeremiah. Give us a oh, sample. Good. Well, I can't really do it here on the phone because you'd not be able to hear it, but. Um, you just, you just, uh, you kind of, well, let me try. Here, let, here, go, go ahead. Here it goes. I don't know if you can hear uh, that. We can hear that just good. That You have rhythm. You really have rhythm. Yeah. 
Well, don't tell me. A anybody. white man with rhythm. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I can't jump, but I do have rhythm. <laughs> I wanted to talk talk about your role as a pastor. Um, how important are the roles of pastors in religion? Well, you know what? One of the sad things is, and, and uh, that's a whole other discussion, but the, the influence of pastors in our culture has waned over the years. You know, it used to be in the early days of our country that one of the most uh, important people in the community was the pastor. And many of those men, as you know, ended up getting into government and, and early in the, in, the, in the country's history. Many of our senators and, and, uh, and congressmen were, were men who were pastors who saw the need to get involved in the political realm. But pastors today can still have a major influence in their culture. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, you know, I've seen all of those lists that you see as to, you know, who, who are the most respected people in the community, and quite often the pastors aren't on the top of the list. But I think um, one of the things I think helps a pastor gain influence is if you will go someplace and put his roots down and, and build a a strong ministry in an area, and then stay there and nurture it for his life. I think you you lose influence when you just you know some of the some of the uh, historic churches you know they move their guys around every two or three years and they barely figure out what the problems are before they are in another place. One of the things that's been great for me is to stay here for a long time. You know, I've I've seen people get born and I marry them, and sometimes I end up burying them. I minister to them, and I watch the families grow, and then I see them come along, and pretty soon they got grandchildren. And you know, it's a wonderful thing to be a part of a growing church, and to watch it and watch it grow and, and be a part of of the family. Well, you make it look easy, and there are a lot of younger pastors following in your tracks. Is it easy to become a pastor? You know, um, that's a really important question, because uh, when I graduated from uh, college after four years of undergraduate work, there were some other guys who were in my class who, uh, and you could take Bible courses at that college because it was a Christian college. Mm -hmm. They just went out of their four years and went and started to work in a church. And most of them struggled. Most of them had a very difficult time. I'm so grateful that I ended up at Dallas Seminary and had four years there to really study and learn how to study. And uh, I tell people all the time, I've been fishing out of that stream for 40 years because I got a good sound foundation. And if I could say anything to young men, it would be don't short-circuit your education. It may seem like it's it's fruitless, and I know sometimes as you get further into the process toward, toward the graduate degrees, some of the things you end up discussing are not relevant to what's going on in the real world. But the discipline of graduate school is one of the great one of the great inputs that was made into my life, and I'm so very thankful for that. Now there are a lot of pastors all over the U.S. Um, what do you do that other pastors don't? How do you well, remain competitive? You know what? Um, one of the things um, that I have done in a very stubborn way is I have tried to stick to what I believe my purpose is. I believe my number one purpose is to help people by nourishing them up in the Word of God. So I study. I prepare messages, and I don't just uh, don't just get up and wing it every week or grab something out of the 
out of the uh, can that I did 20 years ago and, and, and do the same thing again. Obviously, you can't be in the same place for 30 years without some repetition because there are some things that need to be repeated. But I try to stay fresh every week. I know that uh, the, the truth is best understood through illustrations. Illustrations are windows into your soul in many in regards. So I try to find fresh material, fresh illustrations. But it all centers on my research in the scriptures. And uh, I, I think I told you uh, when we were talking before that I'm just about to publish a study Bible that uh, that brings together the notes of, of the study that I've been doing for 40 years around all of the Bible's books, and that, that study Bible is coming out sometime this fall. And going back through the process of doing that has just reminded me of how many, many hours I have spent just studying the Word of God. You know, I've seen you speak. Um, it's very, and I mean this in a good way, it's very fatherly. Mm. You don't use a lot of stage props. You you yeah. stand, you talk, and I think, you know, it, it's very impressive. You know, uh, i got to tell you that I'm kind of a reaction in many ways in, in, the, in the culture that I grew up in, which is somewhat um, um, old, old culture. Some people might even call it fundamentalism. Well, many of the guys, uh, their style was to shout and, and, to, and to prance around and all of that. Mm-hmm. I have never done that. I, be, I believe that if you really, somebody once told me that the way that works is if you don't have anything to say, you pound the pulpit harder. Well, um, my my goal has been, you know, I, I don't I don't at all uh, resent the idea of having a fatherly uh, role. As you get older, I mean, I think that's part of it. I do want to have a, a graciousness about what I do because I believe God is a gracious God. There are times when you have to be stern. Sometimes you can't avoid some of the hard things that come along, and you have to speak to them. But, uh, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our great example, the Bible tells us that he spoke the truth in love. And that's often missing in, in those who communicate uh, uh, the Scripture. You know, if you, if you just speak in love with no truth, then it's, it's worthless. But if you speak in truth and there's no love, nobody wants to hear it. Uh, and there's an old adage that says, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And I think that has to come through in our speaking if we're representing the Bible and if we're representing the God of the Bible, who's one of his major characteristics was he was the God of love. You know, I typed in pastor and fraud into Google the other day. I got 17 million results. Oh, my word. Um, You know, with corrupt pastors in our society and, you know, with your experience having doing this for so long, would you ever consider setting up a governing body of approved pastors to protect the innocent of the faith? (laughs) Well, first of all, that would be an impossible task. And, And secondly, that isn't what God has called me to do. I don't believe I would be capable of doing that. I wouldn't even know how to go about it. You know, one of the interesting things about that question is, uh, after uh, the elections were over this last uh, time, I I was um, had some some men come to see me and wanting to know if I would get involved in getting more involved in politics and trying to bring the values that I believe to the front and and organize and get a political group together. And you know what? I told them that I would pray about it, and I did for a few days. But it was just as clear to me as it could be that that would be something that would take me away from what God really called me to do. You know, there are other people that can do that, mm-hmm. but 
you know, I, I determined a long time ago I wasn't going to give up my pulpit for a soapbox, and I haven't done that. I've stayed true to what I believe God wants me to do. And the, the beauty of that is the Bible is, is as relevant today as it was when I started to preach it 40 years ago. And in many respects, it seems more relevant to me because the problems are more intense. So once again, you sort of an example of how you overcame temptation. Yeah, I was, I, I, you know, anybody who's, you know, I, I go to Washington periodically. I speak, I've spoken at the National Prayer Breakfast and other things like that. And I can see how you could get Potomac fever real easy. I mean, it, it's very seductive to be in that place and to be around all that goes on there. But, um, but when I see what happens, I have a wonderful friend who kind of uh, took off in that direction and, and he lost his way. And, you know, we need people in the political realm, and, and, and if I can speak into that realm as a pastor, I do it often. But I don't want to be a politician. I don't want to run for office. I don't want to do anything other than what God has called me to do, and it gives me such great joy to do that. I, I don't know how I would ever um, do anything else. You're obviously a man who thinks before he acts. So why did you use the words turning point for your ministry? Well, you know, our goal in what we do through radio and television is not just to make people people smarter about the Bible. I mean, we teach, there's no question about it. But we want to have a transformational ministry. By that I mean, the reason we we chose Turning Point, the, the little uh, the little byline that goes under that is when the unchanging Word of God intersects with the changing world, uh, there will be a turning point. And that's true in an individual family. When when a when the Word of God touches the life of a person who is at the right point in his life to receive it, there will be changes. And we get constant feedback on that every day from all over the world. I got a letter uh, this last week, an email from a young man in Kenya who was in the, one of the worst parts of his life, and he was despairing for life and happened to listen to something we did or watch something we did on television, and he wrote to tell us how it started his journey into the, into the reality of who he was and he was going to be all right. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a turning point, and then that's what we go for. That's what we want. We want people to hear this, these, these words and see us, us preaching these messages, what's and then the, change happens. What's the vision for your ministry? Well, over the next five years, uh, uh, first of all, uh, the, the the great thing that's in my heart right now is that Bible I mentioned mm-hmm. to you. I think that that will be somewhat of a legacy in, in many respects. My goal is to get that that Bible printed in all the major languages of the world, beginning with Spanish, and, and uh, that that process is in the way right now. Um, uh, you know, this has always been a hard question for me to ask because it usually comes in the context of a question like this. Uh, Dr. Jeremiah, did you envision all of this happening to you when you started? And the answer to that is, is of course, no. I could have no way of knowing. But I just want to be faithful and and to be active and to be aggressive. I don't uh, I don't have any intentions of fading into the into the uh, future. I I want to do everything. I want to live my life right up to the edge. And when God's done with me, He'll He'll certainly has a way of letting us know that. So um, I can't find anything in the Bible that tells me that I have the right to retire. 
And I'm glad for that because I have no intentions of retiring. If I'm not doing what I'm doing exactly the way I'm doing it now, I'm going to be doing something that's in the vein of this. And certainly broadcasting and, and, and the work in television and in writing is going to be a part of it for as long as I'm alive. In terms of the religious community, to what extent is the LGBT community welcome at Turning Point? Well, they're all welcome. We don't have anybody standing at the door checking people in. You know, anybody can anybody can come to Shadow Mountain that wants to. Um, and and uh, you, you know, this is a big issue right now because uh, the, the storyline has has been created to the point where if I say that I do not believe, for instance, in in homosexuality, or I do not believe that is uh, is a biblical lifestyle. I no longer have the right to believe that, and certainly don't even have the right to, to, to express it in many circles without being painted as a hate monger. And uh, I know better than that. I'm not a hate monger. I don't hate people who are homosexuals. I don't hate gay people. I don't hate lesbians. But I do have very strong convictions about what the Bible says about that lifestyle. And I think it is wrong, and, it, and I think it's, but it's no more wrong than somebody who violates the marriage code and becomes promiscuous in their lifestyle and, and doesn't, uh, doesn't keep their marriage vows. Immorality is, is what it is wherever it uh, intersects life. So, you know, I have to walk this narrow, uh, this narrow line which says, I, I have to be honest about what I believe is true, and yet at the same time we're back to this whole balance that we mentioned earlier, that we hold our truth in love. And I can look somebody in the eye and say, I don't agree with you, and I don't think what you're doing is right, but I still care about you as a person, and I, I, and I, would, I, would, I would have you as a friend. And that's true, and, and, and I don't, uh, I'm not making this stuff up as we go along. That's, that's kind of how I live my life. Now, in terms of the social state of America, the, its culture, and the place of religion, you've been in this now for 40 years as a pastor? That's true. Do you have or approve of the new America, the way the culture is evolving? No, it's very frightening to me. We're, we're moving away from uh, the principles upon which the country was built into a more of a European uh, a lifestyle and nation our current president seems very committed to that, and and uh, the country seems to be more and more comfortable with moving in that direction, with socialized medicine and and um, <clears throat> all of these trends which are are happening right now are, are frightening to me simply because I believe America is a great country, and it's a great country because it was founded on great principles, with a with a great um, vision and hope. And the early days of this nation, and, and even the early days of my life in this nation, have been great, great days. We've certainly never been a perfect nation. We've always had our problems, but we've always had a foundation upon which we could return to which we could return. And I think what's happening now that that concerns me and many others like me is that the foundations are starting to crumble, and uh, we don't seem to know who we are as a nation, and and we're trying to find our way. And unfortunately. When there's a vacuum like that, uh, the result doesn't usually turn out very well. You know, when I was a young child, which was many, many moons ago, um, I used to live outside America, and the only things about America I would see would be the Cosby Show and Happy Days. Now, if you go outside America, what you see is Housewives of a Given State, 
and the Jersey Shore. Yeah. You know, that sort of says a lot. Yeah, it sure does. The other thing I found, because I'm a new American, I came here in 2002. You know, it's strange how what you think of America when you're outside America and actually when you come into America. Yes. So different. Um, I'll give an example. I came in June 2002. In December, I used to work for an international bank at the time. And this will always stay with me. I started wishing everyone Merry Christmas because that's what people around the world do. Sure. Um, I've lived in Dubai. I've lived in Abu Dhabi. I've lived in Thailand, in Indonesia. And it's Merry Christmas. Here, I was taken for counseling because I was meant to say happy holidays. Yeah. And like I always say, I thought Sunday was a holiday. Yeah. You know, um, and now Easter is becoming spring egg hunt. Yes. What, well, what's going on there? Well, people are trying to get God and, and faith and religion, especially the Bible, and particularly Christians, out of a place where they have anything to say to anyone. And we've had these wars over and over again. I live here in San Diego, and we've had an ongoing war over a cross that's up on Mount Helix. And, I mean, we've, we've fought World War III over that cross because uh, secularists and atheists and and, uh, and uh, people who don't believe in anything. And and the point of it is, if it's if, if you don't believe in it, what do you care whether it's there for? You know, I never had to figure that one out. You know, people say, I don't believe in God. Well, okay, don't believe in God, but allow us to believe in God and don't become our enemies. But in the, in, the, in the fabric of our culture today, there is this uh, strong uh, push, and it's by not a huge number of people, but people who are very influential and who have a lot of money, to just remove God from every place in the culture. And I don't think it will happen, because there are too many people like you and me who will not allow that. Nobody's ever going to tell me that I can't say Merry Christmas to somebody. I have Jewish friends. I say Merry Christmas to them, and they say Merry Christmas back. So um, this is this is preposterous, and every year during the Christmas season, mm-hmm. we go through this whole thing about having nativity scenes in your driveway or in your in your lawn, and uh, and saying uh, Merry Christmas or even singing Christmas carols at, at school plays. It's just such a ridiculous thing. But um, you know what I felt? I, I felt actually the Christians in this country compromising their religion in favor of political correctness because you talk about the war, but I see it as isolated fights across the country rather yeah. than a joint effort. You know, are, are the Christians becoming the weakest religious community in America despite outnumbering everyone else? Well, I'm sure there's some truth to that. You know, somebody once told me that Christianity is uh, 100 miles wide and an eighth of an inch deep. <laughs> Um, it, it's awful easy to say you're a Christian and, and not really let that be true of the way you live your life. But a person who's a true Christian, who really believes in what the Bible teaches and is, is a person who follows their faith seriously, that person's not going to be uh, swept away by all of this uh, secularism that we have. You know, again, it's the, the model for what's going on right now is Europe. And I, I haven't been in Europe, obviously, as much as you have, but I've been there a lot. And our um, our our media presence is very strong in, in the, throughout the countries in Europe and in Australia, New Zealand. So I get there periodically for events, and uh, when I see what's there, it's not hard for me to see that's where we're headed. Uh, marginalizing everything about God, and you know, and and just becoming a, a nation that that lives as if there were no higher being, and that's a sad thing. It is very sad because it just shows a certain level of 
complacency. Yes. Because, you know, imagine saying to my Muslim friend who's, who's fasting during Ramadan, how's the Jenny Craig diet going? Because I don't want to use the word Ramadan. Yeah. They're going to be highly offended. Sure. Well, you know what? I think we just got to keep saying saying the things we think are right. And, and uh, if it gets us in trouble, uh, God will help us. And, and I'm not going to change my vocabulary because somebody thinks it's not right for me to say Merry Christmas. No, it's not about us. It's about us as a whole community. Yeah, right. The whole community needs to take a stand because it's just so harmless. I mean, when does a festive greeting become a personal insult? You know, for me, that was a real revelation being taken for counseling. Yeah. Um, how do you explain to your followers? Because you wrote a book about religion and happiness. Um, how do you explain to your followers tragic events that happen in our life, such as, you know, the recent school shootings, death of loved ones? Well, I got to tell you something. Those are hard questions for any of us to mm-hmm. answer. You know, the, the old um, paradigm on that is if God is loving and he's in control, you would think he would make sure this didn't happen. So God must either not be loving or he must not be in control. And I don't believe either one of those are true. First of all, I don't pretend to understand God. I do know that God created this world and he created all of us with a free will so that we could choose to worship him and not be like uh, puppets on the end of a string. And whenever there is free will, there will always be those who take that in the wrong direction. Whenever man is given the the opportunity to choose, some men will choose uh, and make wrong choices. We live in a world that is filled with evil, and uh, sometimes uh, evil erupts in the midst of this a free environment which God has created. Um, the other thing that I often see is that often after these uh, tragedies, uh, other things happen that are uh, that are beyond uh, our ability to comprehend in terms of good. I'm not to say that a tragedy is is allowed for some good because people are hurt in that tragedy. I deal with this every week. I deal with it. I mentioned earlier with this family that's just gone through. I'll tell you this accident that I was telling you about earlier. Yes. They, were in a, they were in a van with their children, and a guy who was drunk got on the freeway going the wrong way, 65 miles an hour, and hit their van head on. It's a wonder. He was killed, and it's a wonder the whole family wasn't killed. But they're going to be maimed and hurt for a long time, and they may never, ever again be themselves. The 17-year-old girl in the van was a beauty queen, and her face is scarred. And I go and sit with these people, and I cry, and I hurt, and I, and I try to say to them, you know, I don't understand why God allowed this, but we do live in, in this universe, and uh, he, he wasn't responsible for that man hitting you in front of your in the car. I mean, so, you know, you can tell whenever you talk to people about this, some people just, just say, well, you know, I, I read a book by a very famous rabbi who said the problem is that God is a loving God, but he's not in control, that he created the earth and, and the world, and he went off and left it to run by itself, so he has no control over what happens. And I don't think that's possible, because I believe God is sovereign. So, you know, one of the things that you you realize when you go into a discussion like this is God is not only powerful, but he's wise. We see his power immediately or the lack of it immediately, but we will not see his wisdom until, you know, providence is something that you read like Hebrew. You read it backwards. You look back over your shoulder and you see it. And what we don't understand now, sometimes we do later.
And in situations like this accident, if they doubt their faith in God going forward, how do you handle that? First of all, I don't uh, I don't fuss at them about it. I don't scold them. I think that would be the normal, natural process through which a person would go. Mm-hmm. I walk with them through it. I encourage them. I share the scriptures with them to to bring uh, strength to them. I, I help them as, in every way I can to recover and go forward and, and to rebuild their lives. And uh, that um, that's a very important uh, principle to keep going. Sometimes when people lose. They forget what they have left, and one of the roles that I believe a pastor has is to help people see that while they have lost, they also have left, and 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 uh, you can make a choice to, to live around the sorrow of what you've lost, or you can choose to work through that and set your eyes on what you have left. Now, you've written many books, and I think you're on the New York Times best-selling list. What inspires you to write a book? You know, uh, writing is a very precise uh, science. You know, I'm in the midst of writing a book right now, and it's both the best of the world and the the worst of the world. I both love it and I hate it. People ask me if I like to write books. I tell them I like to have written a book. But... um, but it's a very good discipline for your mind. It's a very good discipline. For instance, I just uh, finished some writing on this in this book on the fear of God. Uh, what does it mean to fear God? And I wrote a whole chapter on that. How, how, that's in the Bible many, many times. To fear God, does that mean we're supposed to be afraid of Him, or does that mean we're supposed to reverence Him? And the answer to that question is both. We're both to fear Him and we're to reverence Him. It's both awe and uh, and 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 being afraid on occasion. So, so when, I have to, when I have to write, I have to be precise in what I say, and that find that to be very good for me, and hopefully it's good for the people who read what I write. So do you write these with your own hand? I mean, do you use ghostwriters, or are they just you? No, no, I, I, uh, I don't. I use, I use a computer, first of all. Right. I've become a very, very fast uh, typist, and I, I write and do all my sermons and everything in a computer. And I have people that help me with research, and, and uh, I have a, a guy who will take what I've written when it's all done, and he'll polish it up a little bit because I'm more of an oral person than I'm a written person. But it, this is my stuff. I'm not. I don't uh, have somebody come in here and and pay them to write a book for me. I don't do that. Right. And all your books are about God, so that leads me to ask, how many times does one need to interpret the message of God? I don't have enough years left in my lifetime, if I could live it ten times over, to even come close to the subjects that I would love to explore if I had time. The Bible is an exhaustless treasure of truth, and every book and every chapter can lead you down a trail that you might not come back from for for hours and, and, and days. So I just I just go from one thing to the other, and when I feel like maybe it would be good to write on this, I'm writing on the book of fear uh, on fear right now. And um, I, I just told some people yesterday we did some uh, thirty second spot announcements to encourage people to come and hear these messages, which start on the fourteenth of April. And they said, "Well, where'd you put the spot announcements?" I said, "We put it in the nightly news. That's the most fearful place you can ever go." So. Uh, I try to find things that are touching people and then write about them and try to help them. That's that's what I do. You've also got a book on happiness, like I mentioned before. Can happiness and religion coexist? Because for me, religion is about following God, 
and happiness is always about following your inner desire. And as is always in my case, they're always contradicting each other. Well, you know, happiness is really not the best word in the sense that happiness has to do with happenings, uh, but uh, joy has to do with the relationship that you have with God through Jesus Christ. The book uh, Happiness is about an Old Testament book that Solomon wrote, Ecclesiastes, and it's his search for happiness. And as you know, that book is very intriguing because Solomon goes through this long and arduous uh, search to... um, find out what what life means, and he keeps coming up empty until he gets clear to the end of the book. And then he comes to the conclusion, I have finally figured it out. Here's what it means to be happy. Fear God and keep His commandments. And uh, so that whole book is about that journey to happiness. And and uh, But you're absolutely right that happiness has to do often with circumstances and happenings. But uh, when you find joy, joy transcends all of that. And... and uh, I believe that Jesus Christ is the source of joy. He he himself claimed to be uh, that. And uh, when I found Jesus Christ in my own life as a teenager, I began to understand what it meant to have joy. And uh, so that even in the midst of difficulty, uh, I I can have a center of joy in my life that is not dictated by the circumstances. Now, you told us about the study Bible that's coming out. You also have another book, What Are You Afraid Of?, Yes, those are both due in the fall, and I've reminded myself numerous times, don't ever do that again, where you have two projects that are coming down that I told my wife yesterday, sometimes I feel like I'm standing in the middle of freeway, and a bus is coming one way that has book on it, and a bus is coming the other way that has Bible on it, and I'm trying to figure out which one's going to hit me first. Um, What are you afraid of? What is that about? It's about a number of things that people are afraid of and what the Bible has to say about it. The first chapter in the book is about the fear of failure. So many people are afraid of failure. You know, people can become so afraid of failure that they don't even want to try to succeed. And uh, in the Bible, there are some wonderful illustrations about people who are afraid. When they were given a task to do, they were afraid. And tracing how God uh, met that need in their life is what that chapter is about. There's a chapter in there about the fear of death. Uh, The Bible says there are some people who go through their whole life in bondage to the fear of death. I don't know if you saw it, but just the other day when uh, Chavez died, on the front page of the magazine that told it was his statement, please don't let me die. But nobody could help him, because the last time I learned... Um, the statistics on death are 100%. So what the Bible says about death is really important. You know, if, if you know what's going to happen to you after you die, you don't have to be afraid of dying. Um, you know, I, I love what uh, one of the Hollywood actors said about it. He said, uh, uh, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. You know, it's just sort of... That's the way people are. So I wrote, a, hopefully, a very helpful chapter on why you don't have to be afraid of dying. And then there's a chapter on being afraid of danger. How do you go about life without always being afraid of danger? So the ten chapters in this book are about some of the fears people have, and it's full of the stories of the Bible and of, of, of culture today and principles that help them deal with that fear. What's the legacy you wish to leave behind to your followers? You know what? I hope that when my time here is finished and uh, and I'm done and somebody else comes in to 
do what I'm doing, that people will remember uh, he was a faithful man, that he um, he stayed true to the cause that he believed God had given him, that he was that he gave us everything he had in his life uh, to to help us, and that. Um, he he raised a good family. He was a good husband and a good father, and uh, hopefully they will they will believe and remember that I was a man of God. That that could be the greatest thing that could ever happen. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show, Doctor Jeremiah. It's been wonderful having you. Well, it's been good to get to know you during these two uh, conversations, and thank you for having me. I'm, I'm I'm blessed to be your guest. Thank you, sir. God bless you. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is it for today. Thank you for listening. Feel free to send in your comments to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the Vip Jaswal Report or tweet me if you dare at Vip Jaswal on Twitter. Thank you for listening and keep your ears open for the next airing of the Vip Jaswal Report coming soon.